Welcome back to another episode of the Lead with Data podcast with myself, Rena Gami. In addition to being a podcast host, I also lead a business intelligence and data analytics recruitment practice. This is the podcast where I bring you some of the most talented data leaders who have contributed in significant uplift of BI and data analytics capabilities in some of the most progressive organizations across Australia. I want to share the stories of their careers, challenges they faced, and the reality of how the recent pandemic may or may not have impacted their roles and responsibilities in their current organizations. Here's where we get to learn what some of the professionals in this field are doing right now. Welcome back to another episode of Lead with Data. On the show today, I'm joined by Kendra Vant. Kendra is the Executive General Manager of Data for Xero. I'm sure many of you have heard of of Xero. Kendra has an impressive track record. She's worked um, as a leader in a number of different countries. Um, and she's got a very interesting background um, that started off um, from more of an academic uh, career to more recently um, a broad data executive leader across um, multiple different functions. She's responsible for looking after the technical and non-technical components of data across zero. In this discussion today, Kendra shares with us um, her career journey, what were some of the defining roadblocks and challenges that she faced, um, the kind of key attributes that she believes makes a good leader, um, and also um, what you need to do to build credibility as a leader. If you are interested in um, hearing about the things that you need to do to help push your career forward, but also hear from somebody who's incredibly, incredibly intelligent and smart who has worked across a number of different domains, then this is definitely uh, an episode that you don't want to miss. Hello, Kendra. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It is such a pleasure to be here, Rena. It's great to um, have a leader like you on the show. Um, I think I mentioned to you when we caught up um, the other day that, you know, this season is very much about highlighting some of the amazing female leadership that we've got across the data and analytics space. Um, So I'm absolutely delighted to have you here and um, share your experience and and career background um, with everyone that's listening. Um, I'll get you to do a quick intro. I always get the guests to just give us a bit of a background um, of where you sort of come from and, and what you're doing now before we sort of dive into the conversation. Absolutely. Let me start with where I am today, and then maybe we can go back and forth a little bit across the yeah. career, which well, it's not too long, but it's, it's getting up there. Gosh, we, <laughs> time does fly. So today I work at Zero, the small business accounting firm. So reasonably well known now in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. Um, although less if your if your listenership includes global, I lead data. Data, machine learning, and AI, perhaps, is the best way to describe it for zero globally. So, quite a large and growing and quite diverse team. We cover what folks might originally think of for a CDO type role, a, a sort of a central data team role, which is that my teams build and look after and nurture what I might call the data fabric of zero. So, the data platforms, the movement, the enrichment what drives operational reporting, revenue reporting, that sort of thing. So a big bunch of lovely people, really technically proficient. It is it is a really hard space doing that. We have the folk who lead Zero's scalable product analytics thinking. So how do you put in place frameworks that allow you to monitor and make use of and enrich your products based on the behavior and usage from your customers? Mm-hmm. We've got a team who looks after the strategy of data. And for us, that doesn't mean the data technology. Obviously, I have architects and engineers who do that, but folk who look after what does it make sense for Zero to do commercially with data? What might be the aspects of a partnership around that? Um, And also really importantly for us as a company, what is the right and responsible way to use the customer data that flows through our platforms? So a team of really smart, really diverse people looking after that. And then I'm really lucky to also lead Zero's AI products teams. So I have around 40 folk who build the really fascinating data-driven um, AI products that back quite a lot of our customer experiences. So that is why I love my job. There is never a dull moment when you lead a team as diverse as that. Absolutely, absolutely. And what are you, um, and I always ask every guest this question, what are you most passionate about? Because you just described there so many different elements that go into having a, you know, strong capability across data. But what are you most passionate about when it comes to data? 
Rena, I'm sure you're not asking me to choose my favourite child because we can never do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think if I look on a slightly broader sweep of my career and, you know, where I've come from and where I'm going, I, I really like building things that are useful to people. So I think if you if I stitch together all the things that I have been passionate enough to pour a lot of time and effort into, it's how are we solving problems that are relevant and are going to be super impactful to people. So be that the people who are the finance team at Zero who need to understand really clearly how the data is used, or be that the small business owner who really needs to understand whether or not they're going to make payroll next month. I find it, in some ways both problems equally fascinating because what we're doing is the is understanding what the real real need is and then building robust systems that meet both of those needs. So that has sustained my it is passion actually and certainly my enthusiasm to get out of bed and get to work for years and years through a changing fabric of the companies and the problems but it's that solving really hard problems with really smart people is what I love. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks for sharing that. Um, and careers um, are often described today as jungle gyms rather than ladders. Does that resonate with you? And if so, what's an example of that um, into your journey today? Oh, it really does. So if anyone happens to go and look at my LinkedIn profile, they'll see that I started off a long time ago um, as an academic. So I spent 11 years working in, in and around really, really fundamental physics research. So I used to fire very high precision lasers at extremely cold hydrogen atoms. <laughs> and then I moved from that to building um, quantum computers. Like, so not the algorithms of computing for quantum computers, but actually the physical things themselves. Yeah. Um, and I moved from there into the commercial world through consulting um, and now into what I love, which is SaaS products and particularly yeah. SaaS products driven by data. So I couldn't agree more with there is nothing linear about a career today. And I think perhaps particularly that's true in a discipline and an area that is as young as data and machine learning is. One thing I often sort of say when I'm trying to help people understand what I mean by young, I'm like, so doctors, they have been around for hundreds of years, extremely well understood now, quite regulated, like there's a way you become a doctor and that's a really understood and and confirmed position. Software engineering, compared to doctors, that's quite a young profession. Yeah. It's reasonably established now. People have been programming computers for quite a long time. Data, oh my goodness, it is a very, very young profession. So I think that if you want to enter a space like data, goodness me, definitely like machine learning and AI, there is nothing linear about it because if you're a young person today, The field that you will be working in, the technologies that you'll be working with, the things that you'll be able to do 10 years, 20 years, 30 years into your career, they haven't been invented. Yeah. So if you are not fundamentally happy with being on a jungle gym, you're not going to want to enter this space. For me, um, there's been a couple of really good examples where I've simply said to myself, "I I want to learn something new. So I left a management role at Telstra to take on an individual contributor role at Seek, the job search company. Yeah. Because I saw a real, a real interesting inflection point where the data available and the technology available was really changing companies' ability to build machine learning into their products. Yeah. That was something I wanted to have personal hands-on experience with. It really, really resonates with the analytical side of my brain that used to study physics. And that was important enough to me to say, I'm not going up. I'm definitely going sideways. I want to learn this. I want to understand the possibilities. And that sort of parlance into the role I have today at zero. Yeah. Yeah. And at what point, I mean, you've just talked about your career going from academics to building to now data analytics. At what point did you sort of start to realize um, that you wanted, or at what point did you sort of decide you wanted to move away from those and move into data analytics? Or did it just sort of happen progressively? Or did you just happen to fall into those roles? I'm just trying to give the listeners a bit of an idea, because I think um, what you've just said there is that, you know, a career in data analytics is, you know, is not so straightforward. Um, And many of the leaders I've spoken to have come from varying backgrounds, um, you know, very different, and they've ended up as a data analytics leader. So I'm just keen to sort of share at what point or what are the things that you identified in your career that made you think, actually, there's something here and I could move more into that and be more focused. 
Yeah. So I preference my answer with saying that I've been working commercially for 18 years now. And I know that because I know exactly relative to my twins' birthdays when I actually left academia and started working commercially. And the reason I mention that is, like I said, incredibly fast-moving field. And so I think, while I completely agree with you that a lot of folk of my age and stage came from very, very odd and diverse backgrounds, we will probably see that become less true Yes, somewhat more standardized in the two decades to come. So I just, particularly for people starting out in their careers, I think that's a really just something to chew on and think about. Um, So I, I have no regrets in the immense amount of time and effort I invested in being an academic. I loved grad school. It was fantastic. But I often say I was probably a poor scientist and a great engineer, by which I meant I was a good scientist. MIT is yeah. a melting pot and you're going to be, uh, <laughs> you can go from being the top of the top to the, to the also ran, which I certainly was at MIT. Great place yeah. to be and also ran. But what I realized by the end of my graduate studies was that I was far more interested, reference my earlier um, sort of answer, in building really fundamentally useful things that I could see people yeah. use, which apologies to the scientists out there, but does tend to be something that engineers do perhaps a little more than actually cutting edge scientists. Mm -hmm. So when I was wrapping up my academic career and knowing that I did not wish to pursue that as a career, I wanted to move into another space, I was really focused on, I want to find a space where you can be super deeply nerdy and technical and all those things that I love and I'm good at, but you can put that to the application of building fun and interesting and useful things for people. So that was really deliberate for me to move from academia to effectively software engineering. Yeah. At the time I did that, a lot of my peers were leaving graduate school at MIT and similar uh, universities to go into uh, quant roles on Wall Street. And right as I left, I was the tipping point between everybody who didn't stay in academic went to quant and then everybody who didn't stay in academic went to Google. Right. Okay. I really wanted to come home to New Zealand, so neither of those were a great option for me. But it was the same kind of tipping point of, hey, with the advent of really big crunching computers and enormous amounts of data, our skills in mathematics, statistics, and experimentation are becoming extremely marketable in understanding how to make those that data and that information work commercially. So it was looking around at the landscape, realizing there was a sea change, Understanding what I needed to add to my academic understanding was an understanding of fundamentally how to build the products and getting into that space. For me, I've always been fascinated in the data rather than simply the software. The software was something I needed to learn and I loved learning about it. But probably that thread of how you take machine learning and build it into consumer products has been a guiding line for me. And it's then been what is the next thing that I need to learn to be able to be well-rounded and lead the thinking for that at a holistic level? Yeah. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Now, in terms of um, roadblocks, you know, uh, many of us sort of faced during our career, um, you know, what were some of the defining roadblocks or challenges that you faced um, and how did you overcome them? So I think one that's common to a lot of folk who have a passion for this space and certainly folk with a background similar to mine is it is super easy to be pigeonholed as the deeply technical pointy hatted person. Yeah. Um, I think that's really unfortunate, but it's something that if you realize it and are super cognizant of, you can work your way beyond if that makes sense. So this didn't wasn't a struggle for me because I have always found the, the complete holistic business problem fascinating, and I went into P&L ownership very early for that reason. But I think the way I would advise other folk to make sure that they can't be pigeonholed or that they have a really great, robust way to walk away from that is to learn about other aspects of the business. So learn how your company makes money. Mm-hmm. Learn how the thing you do contributes to how your company makes money. Um, make sure that you can talk about your business, your company's business in a holistic fashion. And if you're wanting to become a, a leader and think that you might wish to become not just a technical leader, but somebody who has um, general management experience and a broader leadership, mm-hmm. 
either if you're lucky like me, you find it interesting already, or gosh darn, manufacture that interest in yourself to learn about all of the different aspects of general management leadership. Why? Because you cannot avoid somebody making an assumption about you based on your academic background and your current title. But what you can do is know the smart question to ask, know the interesting question to ask, and be able to just gently and persistently readdress people's unspoken bias about what your strengths and interests may or may not be. Yeah. Um, and that was going to be my next question was when you are in um, a technical role um, and the business or your stakeholders view you as the technical person, how do you strategically um, develop those skills or how do you find the capacity to what 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 sort of things did you use to help you build that? Because obviously you've still got your day job, you've still got deliverables that are expected due to your technical expertise. How did you expand that and what resources did you tap into? Yeah, so I think there's one really obvious place in my career, which if if it is useful, if it is an option open for somebody, I've got to say it works pretty darn well. Yeah. Um, is be a consultant. Yeah. So the th- some people are really well suited to being a career consultant. That wasn't me. Mm-hmm. But I look back with A, great fondness and B, a lot of gratefulness to the period I spent as a consultant. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is because if you play your cards right, you will move through and experience a lot of different companies and industries in a short period of time in a way that's super socially acceptable. It's not very socially acceptable to change your job every six months. Yeah. People look at you a bit oddly and go, what are you doing? What is wrong <laughs> with you? It's super uh, acceptable to change the the company that you consult to every three to six months. And so if you're smart and you work hard and you just want to be a sponge for ideas mm-hmm. and very rapidly learn a, a little bit or even a lot about a lot of different industries mm-hmm. and companies. That's one reason why working in a consultancy for a period of time in a career is a really magical opportunity if you can yeah. make it work. The other reason is that particularly if, as I did, you work in a relatively boutique part of a consultancy, you need to be a jack of all trades Yeah, and you get the opportunity to do that. So I learned an enormous amount with a group of really smart peers, some of whom still work with me today, of how to build a deck, how to understand and talk to non-technical executives, and perhaps how to articulate your ideas in a way that is super consumable to many, many different people. Um, I think I often say to my colleagues and, and you know, team, if, it does, if the person you are speaking to doesn't understand what you said, sure, you can say that that is their problem, but really it is your problem. Yeah. That might not be fair, but the world is not fair. If you want to be impactful, yeah. one way you can do that is to change the words that you say to try to make sure that they're actually interpreted at the ears of your listener in the way that you need them to be. You can get disgruntled that they don't understand you, but that's really not going to get you very far. And I think that being a consultant for a period of time in your career is a really great way to learn a lot of those skills very, very fast. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. And look, we uh, definitely from a recruitment perspective, we've experienced that as well, that when we're working with individuals who come from that consulting background, they um, they have to develop those skills very early on in being able to learn about organisations um, very quickly because they're on these projects for a very short period of time. Yes. And they, they're they just forced to ask these questions, which obviously build build those skills, um, which, um, yeah, which have been really, really useful moving forward. So thank you. Uh, thanks for highlighting that again. And I think if you want to work as I did and do in a deeply technical part of this, of the world, although to my point, you know, I run, I, I own all of data at zero from strategy to implementation, to AI, to reporting. I think a a stint in consulting is a fabulous idea for the reasons we've just discussed. I think you might run into some level of skepticism Mm -hmm. if you spend a very long time in consulting. The challenge with that one being that for myself, if I look at someone with a decades-long career in consulting, one question I'd have, and obviously to be proven or disproven, is have you ever run a system for years? 
Yes. Have you ever had to manage a legacy system? And have you ever decommissioned a system? So I think that's the flip side of what consulting tends not to give you, that working inside a large organization like a bank or a telco can really give you is, oh, the shiny comes off these things awful quick. (laughs) And what's it like to need to run a non-shiny system? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Being able to see things end to end is probably yep. one of the things you don't necessarily get to see when you're you, when you're in consulting. Absolutely. Um, and then moving on to, I suppose, you know, um, you being a leader, um, what do you believe are the key sort of attributes of an executive leader in data today? So let me start maybe with what I think are the key attributes of being any kind of leader. Mm-hmm. And I would say those are empathy extraordinarily important. Um, The ability to go from a genuinely minute level of detail to a very holistic strategic picture and back and forth rapidly. If you then layer on, perhaps expanding on that, why do I think those are important within data? I really don't like the term, it is a war for talent, but let us say that talent in this space is rare Mm -hmm. and takes a while to develop. You will make an outsized impact, and I know that that's certainly the extent to which I have made an outsized impact is heavily dependent on the people that you can bring into working with you and around you. And I'm a really big um proponent of the book Radical Candor. If folk haven't read that, I would really, really recommend that you do, Kim Scott. What I really like about, I read that book many years ago and I reread it on a relatively regular basis. One of the things that I think that Kim does and articulates amazingly well that to me is a really, really defining characteristic of a great leader is there is a wonderful job for every single person that they can be really expert at. That is not the same thing as saying that every person is really expert at the job they're doing today. And one of the best things you can do for a person is help them understand that this is not that job for them and give them the opportunity to discover the job that is. Yeah. And that sort of takes us to another of my absolutely favorite books, which is called um, The 100-Year Lifespan or something very similar to that. And it discusses that the fact that, um, you know, we're lucky, particularly in, you know, countries like Australia, to have soaring levels of um, health and vitality, and we're all going to live quite a lot longer. That's fascinating and interesting and great until you get to the idea that that means that a typical career might be 70 years long. Yeah. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't do the same thing for 70 years. And so it points out the, the real necessity and importance of the resilience of building new skills. So if you take that idea of a career is 70 years long and People are going to be excellent at something, maybe not just what they're doing at that moment. It shows you the importance as a leader of helping everybody find the thing they are really good at. And if that means helping them move on from the role they are doing today because they're not really good at it, you are opening the opportunity for them to find the space in which they are excellent. Yeah. The radical candor, huge proponent of it because it's it's an honest form of leadership. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And what was the other book that you mentioned before? Just I believe it is called The 100-Year Lifespan. Lifespan. And the one before that that you mentioned? Is Radical Candor, Kim Scott. Radical Candor. Okay. Radical Candor, yeah. That is a that is a sort of a, a Bible of the tech industry. Um, yeah. She's quite an amazing woman. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Um, and then leading on to that, what attributes do you look for in your team when building? Because obviously... Um, you know, as as a leader, uh, one of the biggest um, acknowledgements is that you're you're not going to be the expert at everything. But what's important is building a team that of experts um, or specialists that can deliver the vision that you have. So, what are the attributes that you look for in your team? Absolutely, and I I still interview heaps of the folk that come into my space. I have the privilege of a leadership team that is built. So I'm not having to build my own. Yeah. That's, that's been the work of the last two and a half years. And I did mention to my team the other day, gosh, I don't have to interview as much as I did. Could all of you please stay right here? <laughs> um, but I do still interview all of the folk who work for the, 
the yeah. folk who work for me. So it is a big part of my um, my role and my passion because if if interviewing is a terrible way to bring people into an organisation, we just haven't found a better one. Yeah. You know, same as that whole problem with democracy. Yeah. Um, what I am looking for, I guess, is a combination of track record, mm-hmm. uh, demonstrable track record of having not just thought about and talked about but actually having done mm-hmm. I look for resilience mm-hmm. so a person who can demonstrate or talk about the situations in which life has been less than perfect the role has been less than rosy the the path has been less than smooth mm-hmm. and how they have navigated that because my goodness that is the world that we live and work in I look for perhaps confidence and curiosity together. So just confidence can be a problem. Mm-hmm. Confidence and a, and a sort of a, a real level of comfort with an understanding of what you are good at and curiosity to know and acknowledge that you're certainly not good at everything, mm-hmm. plus you still have enormous potential to learn and grow. If you can find that combination of people with a track record confidence in their own ability and curiosity, I think you are really at the beginnings of a really strong, solid working relationship if you can find those things. Of course, also technical competence, ability to do the specific things they personally do. And then the one that perhaps COVID only elevated for us all was that, I'll go back, I guess, to empathy, that ability and the desire to work together as a team to be how would I put it to be gracious about your own not strengths mm-hmm. and other people's yeah and to be to be open and curious to working and learning with a whole variety of different people rather than being judgmental of the fact that no one is going to be exactly like you and if I look at my own leadership team we are an incredibly diverse bunch of people. We have done a lot of different things and we all have different things to bring to the table. That wouldn't work if we also all went, hmm, well, you didn't know how to write a consulting deck. Well, yeah. you've got no idea how to run operational triage events. Well, you don't know what it's like to have to maintain yeah. legacy software. But because we can all bring that curiosity and comfort that we're great at what we're great at and we want to work with folk who have other strengths that complement ours, Correct. that is, is what makes, in my experience, a group of people into a great leadership team. Definitely. I think having um, having different strengths and capabilities, um, but also that respectful acknowledgement of the areas that you're not so strong in um, and your, um, you know, your colleagues being able to um, help bridge those gaps creates a very cohesive collaborative um team um and then you know helps to you know potentially even multi-skill and you know cross cross-functionally skill people who may may have some gaps in other areas because everybody's you know sort of open and honest about the 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 strengths and weaknesses that they have and i think our educational system does do you know a little bit of a disservice here so it's something i'd particularly suggest to people younger in their career journeys is we are socialized to think that we should be good at everything yeah and you see that with folk who are early in their careers, that they still believe that it probably is important to be good at everything. Yeah. And both the confidence and the maturity to realize that that's impossible and it would make you a really unpleasant person to work with and to therefore feel more comfortable to, ex- to acknowledge genuinely, this is where I this is my real strengths. This is where I'm keen to grow. And this is where I'm excited to have people who compliment me. I don't know how many times, you know, I'm sure you also have asked the question of, you know, so tell us an, an opportunity, a place where you you, you failed or you yeah. haven't done so well. Or, you know, if I, one of my colleagues' favorite questions, and it really is a zinger, is if we were to go into your workplace today and ask the folk who you work with day to day, what is one of Rena's real strength and growth opportunity? What gro- real growth opportunities? Like I, effectively, what's she not good at? Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating question because yeah. the number of people who attempt to answer it with I'm a workaholic or something that could yeah. be ensued to be a strength. When you see people who have grown to their own level of confidence and maturity to answer that question really honestly, mm-hmm. I think it gives you much more confidence that they will be 
robust and resilient in a workplace. Yeah, yeah, because they're comfortable um, with where they're at. And and they've acknowledged that there is yes. no perfect human being. Yes, yes. Yeah, and and they own have they've they've owned that accountability. They've learned from it, and they're happy to acknowledge it. Um, and I think yeah, that's such a key key aspect. And um, it's funny actually, one of the, that's one of the values that we've got at Connexus is it's okay to make mistakes, just own them. Mm-hmm. Let's learn from them. What did we learn from them? You know, I think that's that's more important than trying to make excuses why um, something didn't work. a hundred percent. Excellent. Um, now, going back to your career, um, what would you say um, would be one of the biggest mistakes that you've learned from your career? Or, um, yeah, I think one thing is certainly that you can stay somewhere too long, mm-hmm. and this is something uh, that I think, unfortunately, is still particularly true for women and other minorities in our spaces. Mm-hmm. That we're not socialised to have that level of confidence. And we can be gaslit into through the fact that many folk around you don't seem to think you're ready for the next job. Mm-hmm. We start to actually internalize that and believe that maybe we're not ready for the next job. So I do think that's something that all folk, but particularly folk who are in a minority in whatever area they are in, should pay particular careful attention to. And the way I would suggest, because it's helped me, and it will help me again in the future, I'm sure. The way I would suggest to sort of guard against it and make have, make it have as little impact as possible on your career is find that choir of people who aren't you, mm-hmm. aren't super closely connected to you, so it's not probably not going to work if it's your partner or your girlfriends or your whatever, but who can probably see you a little more clearly than you see yourself and who aren't in that workplace. Yeah. Because um, sort of like a good therapist, they'll be able to say to you, okay, Kendra, so tell me blah, 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 and you say it. And they're like, really? That's actually true. Or is that in your head? Is that how you feel? And I think that ability to, to be able to reference, this is what my day to day feels like. If I take that to a relatively objective external observer, can they give me that clarification of whether, yeah, that sounds reasonable, that's the age and stage of the career you are at, or that doesn't seem to resonate with the way I hear you talk about your comfort and your your space outside of it. I think that can guard against the challenge of being too reticent to put yourself forward and take the next step. And people will look at my background and say, Jess, you've moved around a fair bit, Kendra. I don't, don't see obvious places where you have been stuck. But take it from me. I, there are a couple of places in my career where I feel that knowing what I know now, I would have moved six months or a year earlier because I was in a situation where I wasn't going to grow at the yeah. company that I was at. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and look, I've done um, a fair bit of um, sort of research and just talking to individuals, particularly females who are um, wanting to push their careers forward or even just through generally recruiting. One of the things I found, um, and, and this may not just be exclusive to, to females, but if they see a job advertisement or they see a post, if they don't pretty much tick every single box, they'll most likely not apply for it. And, um, you know, I think that goes to your point of them just, you know, whereas I think I find that, and, and this is, you know, a, a very general, general, generalized, um, sort of opinion. But when I sometimes talk to some of the male applicants or candidates, even if they've got gaps, they're very confident that they'll be able to bridge those gaps or that they can learn those skills. Whereas I find with females and women generally, they, they're quite humble, but they tend not to, um, you know, over um, overcommit to something if they haven't sort of quite done that before. Um, so I think to your point, it's really about um, putting yourself out there and giving yourself the opportunity if there if you do find that there is some potential. And that's what I always encourage um, a lot of talent to do is even though you don't tick the boxes because no no applicants tick 100% of the boxes. Otherwise, why would they move if they're moving for the same job? you know, my my message to them is you're going to leave anyway. So find a role that's going to give you a challenge, that's going to stretch you, that's going to develop you. And that's the same message I give to hiring managers. You know, when you're hiring somebody, look for somebody who can tick, you know, or who can fulfill the role um, 65 to 75% 
of the requirements, but give them an opportunity to grow. You're going to retain them. You're going to give them scope. You're going to give them space to be creative. Um, and so, yeah, I think it, it does tie in there where I think, um, you know, females tend to be a little bit more cautious about putting themselves out there and what roles they're putting them, you know, putting their hand up for. And I think that's, I couldn't agree more. And the, the reason also, I think, is a, is a technique to help folk work past that fairly, I'm sure it's terribly stereotypical, but unfortunately stereotypes have a basis. In fact, usually that challenge of, and I don't think it's just women, I think it's minorities in general. We are, mm-hmm. yeah. if you are in a minority in the space you are in, you have less positive social pressure to encourage you to feel really confident about your own abilities. And that's why I go back to, you can't change that. I can't change and I wouldn't wish to change the fact that I'm a woman and I have chosen to work in an area that is predominantly male. Mm-hmm. Um, although I tell you what, Data and analytics, not as predominantly male as as experimental physics, which is where I started my career. um, But is that choir, is that really consciously build up a professional network? And I think it needs to be a professional network. You'd be a bloody lucky person if your life partner also happened to be someone who really understood your space and wanted to counsel you in your career. It's a heck of a lot to expect from a single person. So really build up consciously that professional network of people that you've worked with, that you respect, that you know can see you more clearly than you can see yourself and use them, use them when you are thinking about making a change. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And how do you build credibility as a leader, Kendra, as you sort of develop into those roles or when you become a leader, how do you build that credibility? So let me answer that question in two halves because I think that my personal belief that it's certainly in the space I work is there is two sides to credibility. So there is this, the credibility of the technical side because I lead a whole bunch of engineers of many different flavors and there is the credibility of leadership. So I'll start with some ways I think it helps to build credibility in technical leadership. So being someone who a whole bunch of engineers are confident and comfortable to work for. One thing that I did, which... I would love to say it was completely by design. It was, of course, not completely by design, but it stood me in very good stead and I would recommend it to people, is to work across a variety of areas. So I, partially through design and partially through serendipity, have worked in software application engineering, which I used to sort of distinguish that from data application engineering, but I've worked in software engineering. I've worked in business intelligence. I've worked in data governance. I have worked, as we said, in consulting. I've worked in machine learning product build. That one was very conscious if we reference my decision to move from a role into an individual contributor space. It's given me a very broad base of actual lived experience. Mm -hmm. There are few pieces of the organization that I run today that I haven't spent at least some time, perhaps not doing the role of every single person because I have certainly never written production grade software code, although I have written production-grade machine learning code, um, but I have spent a time in each of those spaces. Now, I certainly don't proclaim to be an expert in those spaces, and I'm very clear with my team that if I was, if I could do your job, I wouldn't need you. Yeah. Um, but I believe that gives me the credibility that folk are like, yeah, okay, she's, she is A, going to understand. We're yes. not going to need to do the translation layer for her, and she has an appreciation of the time it takes to do these things well and the expertise required to do these well. And I think that last thing for me is really important because I certainly have, and I suspect that most folk in the data and machine learning space have, worked for people who simply have no understanding of how complex what they're asking is. And it is it is rapidly quite draining to work for someone who genuinely doesn't know why what they are asking you to do will not take twice as long, but will actually take 10 times as long mm-hmm. or is not feasible with today's technology and today's data. So that is one aspect of it. To me, how you build technical credibility is yeah. just do it mm-hmm. over a period of a career. So maybe my advice would be if you have been doing one aspect of that for a while and you think that you would like one day to be in a, a more broad leadership role, take the time move sideways, try doing another piece of it. Sure, it might not feel great. You might take a salary cut. I have done that more than once in my lifetime. But if where you, you know, back to that 70-year career thing, if you want to be able to credibly lead a broad space, 
you really probably should invest time in making sure that you understand that broad space. So for me, that's how you build credibility in technical leadership. Building credibility in people leadership, I think it's not shying away from the hard conversations is a really big and important part of it. Um, One place where I have perhaps struggled a little bit is that I have taken to heart, really personally taken to heart something that, you know, sort of learned from my childhood is don't ever ask someone else to do something that you wouldn't be prepared to do yourself. Mm-hmm. Now, you do have to be a wee bit careful as you become more and more senior because you're like, all right, I I, I could do that myself, but I'm genuinely going to ask someone else to do it because it's not cost effective for this company for me to do that. So I do struggle a wee bit sometimes with letting yeah. go of like, no, 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 this is genuinely, Kendra, where it is the best yeah. interest of this company for you to ask someone else to do that for you. But I think that that point of at least having in your mind if I'm going to ask someone else to do this task, I want to mind check that I would do it myself, but I'm not asking someone to do busy work. So perhaps what I'm saying there is a really strong belief that you should respect people and what they do. And if I really like the, um, and I often remember it and say it again to to folks. So there's, there's that being prepared and believing that the work you are asking people to do is fundamentally worthwhile and worth doing. I think that is fundamental to folk wanting to follow your leadership. And then the other one is that statement that I wish I could remember the name of the Australian um, military general who said it, but he said the standard you walk past is the standard you accept. Yeah. There is heaps of different ways of replaying that, and lots of people have said it. The one he said, it really resonated for me, and I believe he was talking um, about treatment of women in the Australian military, but it was something on that lines. But it's such a genuinely important and generalizable concept. The standard you walk past is the standard you accept. And for me, that is another great way, hard way, let's make no mistake about that, but a great way to build credibility and leadership and to have people want to follow you. It is that they have seen you and have confidence that you will continue to have the uncomfortable conversations and to walk the talk that you talk. So I love that quote and I would really encourage folk to hang on to it. The standard you walk past is the standard you accept. And when you walk past it as a leader of people, make no mistake, everyone who you lead sees you walk past that and sees you make that decision or lack decision thereof. And that will, on the longer term and longer scale, undermine your credibility. Yeah, oh, absolutely, definitely. And I think we've we've all heard it and seen it before that people people leave people, people, oh. you know, and it, we've, we've all heard it. I mean, I, I was probably one of those. I worked for a, a big corporate. Um, and was it the corporate that kept me there? No, it probably wasn't. It was actually my manager. Um, you know, she was the reason why I stayed. Um, and for exactly that reason, she would, um, she would put herself, um, in the trenches with us, um, and was prepared to back us all the way, um, and didn't tell us the stuff we didn't need to know. And, you know, she was, you know, very, very much the, the kind of person that would, um, do everything she expected us to do herself as well at, at, you know, at at any request. So I think that, yeah, that, that's definitely true to, to be. I think you've, I think you've just touched on the third one there, Rena. That is so important. I'm so glad you reminded me of it. And it is that that thing of making sure that you are a two-way conduit for information. I think that it is very easy to get very busy. And it is very easy to to ask all the folk that work with you and for you to give you the information that you need Mm -hmm. and synthesize that into the perfect conversation for the folk who are, you know, the board, the executive, whomever it might be. And to forget to pass back to the folk who supported you to create that collateral and information and, you know, absolutely winning uh, presentation and pitch, Mm -hmm. get to pass back to them both the finished product and the reaction that that hard work engendered. And am I perfect? Absolutely not. Do I know that my leadership team will remind me that I'm not perfect? I do, and that's fantastic. But I do think that I, I know that I make a very, very conscious effort to as as often as is um, politically, you know, strategically necessary. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes it's information that you can't pass and, and um, reactions that you need to keep confidential. But where I can, I try to be extremely religious about making sure I do pass that information through to the folk who put it together. Because I think to your point, people don't leave companies, they leave leaders and managers. 
And also, I think people leave an information vacuum. Yeah. So if you want to maintain and grow and nurture and keep around you a really strong team, respect their time and help them understand the impact of what they're helping you to do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And then um, in terms of your career, uh, you know, you've talked about having, you know, quite a, a broad sort of career. What would be the one piece of career advice you'd give your younger self? Oh, it's in such an interesting question, isn't it? We all want to go, oh, you know, just chill out, love. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that would certainly have been useful to certain parts of yeah. younger me. I'm privileged to have just seen the last two of my three children, I have twins, uh, yeah. through the end of VCE. Yeah. And um, let me just say, we learn from our children in the most extraordinary ways. Um, <laughs> I realised having watched my children successfully negotiate the end of school, wow, I worked a lot harder than I needed to in high school. Yeah. <laughs> so they've helped me understand that there are so many different ways to work hard and be effective. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is one thing that I think the younger Kendra could definitely have benefited from is is understanding when is enough. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing, and this perhaps will sound counter to the previous advice, but I don't think it is, that I would sort of bolster my younger self's opinion of because clearly she did think it was reasonably sensible but I think I would go back and say yeah you're spot on with that one I pretty genuinely cannot think of a time that I have learned something that wasn't helpful Mm -hmm. even if that thing at the time did not seem particularly glamorous or particularly interesting um if you're bored at work Maybe you haven't moved on quickly enough, refer my previous point, or maybe you haven't thought about what you could learn from the experience of what you're doing, right? I mean, sure, for sure, don't do a role which you have completely mastered for a very long time, but the number of particularly, again, younger folk that I have seen who who um, perhaps they just, oh, well, I've, oh, that's not very interesting or that's not very glamorous or I don't see a route to parlance that into the next strategic move in my career, I would say to them, I think you're thinking over too short a time frame. Do whatever you are doing right now with excellence and I guarantee it might not be tomorrow, it might be six months, a year, five years, 10 years in the future, but the work that you're doing, if you do it, with intent and excellence will be fundamentally useful to you at some point later in your career. So that is the thing that I would really reinforce for the younger Kendra is embrace what you're doing right now with excellence and it will be valuable. I certainly had a real crisis of confidence when I made what turned out to be definitely the right decision, but it was a hard decision to leave academia mm-hmm. and move into a, techni- a, a commercial world yeah. Because I invested 11 years of my life becoming extremely good at something which was extremely boutique. Yeah. I worked for some of the most famous people in my space. Nobody had heard of them outside of atomic molecular and optical yeah. physics. And I was a young mother and early on in my academic, in my commercial career, and there was a massive crisis of confidence in, my goodness, how is what I have learned transferable? Yeah. It was infinitely transferable yeah you just need to generalize what you have learned so that is such an important thing for a younger person and particularly someone who has specialized and realized perhaps that is not what I want to do for the next decade to have the confidence to know that it is transferable Mm -hmm. you might just need to think hard about what the transferable aspects of what you have learned are yeah, absolutely. And it's about taking away um, the jargon and the buzzwords attached to that specialization. And like you said, you know, um, explaining them in a more general, uh, you know, you finding a general way to sort of explain that. Um, absolutely. I mean, I'll tell you what, I've yet to find a place in my commercial career where I have been able to take into it the advantage that I can work in a machine shop, <laughs> that I can weld, that I can use, a, you know, a drill press. But I guarantee it's going to come in useful on my farm as I attempt to build my shed. So nothing you learn is not transferable to some other part of your life. Oh, absolutely. I think that's such a that's such an important message and for something for everyone to 
to keep in mind, I think, about every aspect of your life, whether it's, you know, like you said, you know, a mother and learning from your children or whether it's, you know, a sibling or a friend or, you know, whatever it may be. I think everything that we sort of do and learn in life um, at some point um, will come to you. So um, it definitely applies to our careers as well, for sure. Um, and one question that sort of I, I'd love to ask you, Kendra, as well is, and, and I sort of hear this, and it does make me nervous and a little bit sad um, particularly with the younger folk, obviously the world's changed. Um, I'm probably similar to yourself. You know, I've come from the old school. You know, we've been in the office. Um, we've worked. We've learned from some amazing, incredible people around us. Um, you know, I can definitely say that I wouldn't be the person I am today if I didn't have these people and I wasn't put in the situations that I was put in um, to, to develop those skills. Um, but a lot of individuals now, um, not necessarily everyone that's young, but even people who are sort of partway through their career or just starting off or sort of coming towards the middle part or the end of their career, they're all sort of shying away from coming into the office. Um, and, you know, and there's definitely the hybrid environment absolutely works. And we, you know, we use that ourselves. But I do feel that particularly when you're starting off your career, there is an element of learning that you will only gain from being around people. What are your views on that? I mean, that's just my opinion, but what are your views, and particularly when it comes to data and analytics in terms of what you've learned and observed throughout your career and currently? Yeah, that is such a topical one. So, and I, I would say that I think my opinion on this has evolved as most people's mm -hmm. have over yeah. the last three years. Um, let me answer that perhaps in two parts because one specifically towards the younger, you know, the younger yeah. folk and how we make sure that they have the opportunity that we had at Correct. a similar point yes. in our careers. Um, one, one thing that I think the pandemic actually assisted with some of our graduates uh, is Zero has a strong graduate program, uh, as many companies in Australia and New Zealand do, and we bring graduates in and rotate them through different areas. And one thing that we did unbeknownst to unknowingly for us that this was not true was that we said well to to rotate into an area you need to there needs to be people in the geographic location in which you work who you can work with which yeah. meant that we rather um, circumscribed the rotations that some of our grades could ro rotate into now obviously we're not silly when everybody was at home we were like right well yeah nope Clearly, there's not much point right now in circumscribing the graduate opportunities for our grads because remotely with someone co-located with you is no different to, like, yeah. you know, time zones a little aside. But New Zealand and Australia, at least, are pretty close together. So that helped us. We learned that that specific thing was not true because okay. our grads thrived in that time. Yeah. However, I will say that we, I believe and I, I hope that some of this is through observe, observation of reality, that there is something about working how to, learning how to work that is really assisted by being able to be in an environment with folk much more senior and in different areas from yourself and just be able to imbibe that working environment. And I think this must be a relatively well-accepted opinion in zeitgeist in our heads, whatever, because it's actually one of the strongest arguments that I have seen made, I have made and have seen be effective to my teams to get them back into the office. Mm -hmm. So my opinion, and it's an experiment that we're trying, mm -hmm. is that unless a person has real motivation to work completely remotely, and there are some people who do, they want yeah. to live in beautiful parts of the world, they are super motivated mm -hmm. to putting in the extra work to stay connected. If if there isn't if that isn't a reason for you, then I think that being in the office at least two days a week, being able to be in that melting pot yeah. with people, assuming it's a, an environment where work is conducive to getting work done, and a lot of companies need to think a little bit harder about that, but that is a good idea. Yeah. And, you know, some folk don't agree with me, and some folk have longer commutes or they have structured their lives around being entirely remote. And one of the strongest arguments that I've seen work to bring my team back into the office is when I've said to them, what about our graduates? Yeah. How are we providing an extraordinary environment for our first-year, second-year people to grow and develop if they, if we do not give them the opportunity where, you know, a, a core of people will be in the office? Because I should say we don't just go back in on random days. We really try to pick team days. Yeah. And I've found that that's been an extraordinarily strong argument for many people to go, oh, yeah, 
Oh, that's a really good point, actually. No, no, you, you've convinced me, Kendra. I think I should come back into the office. Yeah. So that perhaps gives you an idea of how it, how it resonates with people. And then the other one that is more general, not just to graduates, that I think that it is easy to misinterpret. And one of my team sort of made this, you know, made this really clear to me. And I thought, wow, Kendra, what a stereotype that you had previously been using. Mm-hmm. Is I think many of us use the stereotype of, oh, well, you know, folk like me, who's in a leadership role where I can talk to a lot of people or folk who are really extroverted, which I personally am not, but, um, you know, folk who are, or folk in roles like product and sales, and they're going to benefit the most from being in the office. And maybe our engineers will want to stay in a quieter environment. Yeah. But in actual fact, one of my team um, made a really good observation, which was, you know, I don't want to come back into the office five days a week. My goodness, no, because I'm a knowledge worker and I I spend a lot of time writing intricate, um, highly efficient code. But actually, I like being in the office some of the time because I personally don't like interrupting people. And when I am in an office with people, I can read their body language to tell me when is an appropriate time to go and talk to them because they're not in the middle of flow. Sure, Slack is great and all the rest of it, but I still feel uncomfortable in slacking somebody because I might be interrupting them in a time when they are very busy. Mm -hmm. So I actually really appreciate being in the office for the reasons of being able to choose what feels like a completely appropriate time to kick off a conversation with a colleague. And I would never have thought of that. So it was fantastic around that challenge of be very careful with assumptions about what different people with different personalities and different work obligations will actually find valuable. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, uh, my sort of question was definitely geared more towards the the younger folk and, you know, our um, sort of responsibilities of being providing them the same environment or similar environment to what we were given. Um, And, you know, that sort of duty that we have to ensure that the next level of, you know, professionals coming through also equally have the opportunities that we did um because I think we get to a stage in our careers where like you said we're really comfortable we know what we're doing we've proven ourselves uh, we can deliver what we're doing virtually remotely but we're not really providing that um and we're not passing that down to the next level of um, professionals coming up the ranks so I think it's really important that we I think everybody has a part to play in that um even if you're very accomplished and comfortable in your career and don't want to go any further, but I think we all need to pass that down. So I was just keen to get your thoughts because I'm encouraging particularly the younger folk to try and go in as much as possible, even if it's not, you know, a policy for the company for you to be in, you know, more than two days a week. If you can, go three days a week, go four days a week if you feel there's value um, and it helps you to sort of learn because I know that's definitely the easiest way to learn is by seeing and being and listening um, to people as well. And it's just the serendipity, isn't it, of the people that you might bump into, mm-hmm. the conversations that you might overhear, the discussions that you might be invited to participate in simply because you are proximate. Yes. And we're just not as good yet. Maybe we'll get better. As humans, we're just not as good at being triggered to think about that person. Yes. If they are not physically proximate. And that's not fair. And yes. there's going to be a challenge for folk who choose to be purely remote. Mm-hmm. But it is how the human brain is wired at the moment. So until we get cyborged, I think it is really sensible for for younger folk to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely, definitely. Um, and then look, thank you um so much for sharing obviously um your background and, and sharing some highlights and um, you know, your sort of experience um with the listeners. I always like to sort of ask um leaders as well, how do you see this space evolving over the next three to five years? And I know that's a really tough question because I talk to leaders all the time and what they were working on a year ago has drastically changed you know the times are moving so fast we don't know what careers are going to be coming up over the next 10-15 years but how do you see this space evolve um, over the next three to five years? So I'm not biased at all I think that data machine learning and folks who are really skilled practitioners in that space will only grow in importance yeah so that has been true for the past decade I do not think it will slow down in the next decade. Now, does that mean it's going to ramp for the next 50? No, probably not. But I, it would certainly still be a space that I would be suggesting to a younger person was an incredible space for career growth, a real opportunity to 
have a career that allowed you to learn and learn and learn and learn. So perhaps also it would be a, it would be a little bit of a caveat. If you want to take a job where what you learn in, in university, so I always call it school because of my American influences, if what you learn in uni will stand you in good stead for the next, not a good career in that case, no, nope, you will have to continue to learn. learn yeah. But I see this space continuing to grow te- technologically. So the modern data stack didn't exist when I started in this mm-hmm. space for sure. And I don't think it will five years from now. I think it will be a different modern data stack. You will always have to upskill yourself technically. You will always need to stay current. If that does not appeal to you, don't enter the space because <laughs> it's not maturing anytime yeah. soon. It will grow in business importance. Mm-hmm. As companies get commoditized, there will always be the need to pull for an edge. And the savvy and responsible use of data is that edge for many companies, particularly global internet-based companies. If you don't have a physical product, as many companies don't, what are you differentiating on if not the complex processing of data flows in a savvy and responsible way? So an amazing field, nowhere near maturing yet, very fast moving, and so really aligns well with folk who are prepared to continue to invest in their own education and growth over a career. Excellent. Well, with that, Kendall, look, I'd like to thank you so much um, for joining me on the show and sharing your experience uh, with the listeners. Um, If any of the listeners would like to connect with you, um, I often get some of them reaching out to me. Are you happy for them to connect with you on LinkedIn and reach out if they had any questions or queries? Absolutely. I would have said I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter, but let's just for now say I'm on LinkedIn because who knows where Twitter will be in the next few weeks. (laughs) Perfect. Thank you so much for your time, Kendra. Thank you so much for having me. It was a delightful conversation. 